Let's get started. Let's see if we can finish Romans and the book of Acts. So we only have two passages in the book of Romans left because last week we covered the whole of chapter 8, which is just chock full with references to the Holy Spirit. And now that you understand that perfectly, we're going to zoom ahead to Romans chapter 14 and just see one of the more um, uh, everyday ways in which uh, we should view the Holy Spirit. Uh, really important passage, uh, Romans 14. If you're not familiar off the top of your head, I would encourage you to become familiar with it. Um, because while Romans 13 talks a lot about our relationship to the governing authorities in whatever country we live, uh, Romans 14 talks to us about fellowship amongst disagreements with believers. Uh, and we, if you have not yet experienced, meaning you've been a Christian for five minutes, that not all Christians agree with you, how are we to handle the differences that we have amongst us? What if we, you know, God forbid, come from different cultures with different expectations of what church is, of what pastors do, of what, uh, what days to observe, what foods to eat, what drinks to stay away from, what ones not to? All of these differences exist in Christians' minds, and that happened in the first century the same as it happens today. In fact, I would say it's even more pertinent for us to understand this today because the gospel has now gone out thoroughly to all the Gentile world, and now we are so intermixed with cultures that we're trying to understand how is it that we can come together as Christians. Uh, in the West, we've solved this by having five churches within a stone's throw of each other. That's not actually the solution. Believe it or not, that's not the design. The design is, in the midst of your differences, you'll actually say this. Now, I'm going to be back in Romans 14 here in a couple of weeks on a sermon called um, uh, The Tyranny of the Weaker Christian. Uh, and we're going to address kind of this, this happenings that happens, especially in the Western church, where the person with the most rules in their life gets to rule the roost. Uh, you know, they, they stay away from this, they don't do this, they stay away, and then we all just go, oh my goodness, so spiritual. And we want to know how, how does Romans actually put our reactions to one another. So let me kind of read this chapter up to where I'm going to so you can get his reference here because it's a passage that we should all be reading much more often and is hardly ever discussed. So let's start Romans 14 uh, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Well, that just kind of eliminates like half of fellowship, doesn't it? One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, that's also a play on words. It happens in English and in Greek, both. Um, it, it's weak in faith, and it actually makes one weak in body, which he's actually uh, putting forward, right? Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, which is the normal reaction, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, which is also normal, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? We're in Romans 14, by the way. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, that's a remarkable statement. He says to both of these people, they have different concepts of how the Christian life is to work with regards to the example is given is food. And whether they eat everything or they eat only vegetables, both of them serve the Lord. The Lord is able to make them stand. Basically, get along. Don't, don't sit here and quarrel over opinions. It's not worth it. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, things like Easter, things like Christmas, right? Um, while another esteems all days alike. I have gone to church with people who think it is wrong to celebrate Christmas and Easter and anything. Every day should be seen exactly the same, 
right? How are we to solve these problems? Are we to sit here and quarrel over it and throw verses at one another? No, what does he say? The one who observes the day, no, excuse me, what does he say at the end of verse 5? The other one seems all days alike. What does he say? Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Right? That's, that's the goal. Are you right or wrong is not actually the question. Which is so difficult for us sometimes because we want to know who's right. Well, there, there is an answer to that, but there's something that is our job way before figuring out who's right and wrong. And that is Christian fellowship. And the typical natural human way to solve these problems is actually just to cause discord. So what does he say? Each one, be fully convinced in your own mind. Verse 6, the one who observes the day, observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. The one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. In other words, you're not just an individual. You have a responsibility to the community of faith. And in bearing out that responsibility, you are going to find conflict. Verse 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each one of us will give account of himself to God. In other words, don't, don't insert yourself in between God and another one of his people. This is one of the reasons why we uh, celebrate communion in the way that we do here, to ensure that that perception is not even given to the pastoral office. I do not stand between you and God. I'm not the high priest. We are all priests. Christ is the high priest, right? Same here. It is not my standard that you live by. It is God's standard. And whether I teach that right or wrong is up to scripture to determine, and we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, right? That, that is the Christian perspective of these things. All, all churches, as long as they're doing it as unto the Lord, that's correct. It's not that it's correct. It's that it is of far less importance than fellowship is. Um, it, it's not that... It, so everyone should be convinced in their own mind, right? As he says. Now, these are, on, these are on tertiary scruple matters, right? These are on, you know, eating and days and drinking and things like this, right? This stuff is not the matters of the kingdom of God, right? And he's going to go on to actually show what about this is, right? Um, so let's, let's go through this. And if you still have that question, come back with it, okay? Verse 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Notice, the standard there is Christians. It is not for anyone ever. It doesn't, this is not a passage that says you cannot call out sin. This is to say we have an obligation for fellowship that supersedes making each other part of the same culture, right? Right. So I, I grew up Presbyterian. I am Baptist. I have no hatred towards my Presbyterian brothers and sisters. I may have different. I may have differences and disagreements. That is just fine. That's just fine. I will honor their baptism. I insist they honor mine. 
and we serve the Lord together. And here's the thing. It's not my job to figure out who exactly is right and wrong. This is one of the great things about all of this. And that's on something that's quite important, baptism. Now, I will teach what I see from Scripture, but it's not my job to stand between, for instance, uh, Presbyterians and God. You know, kind of like Moses. Everyone thinks that he was kept out of the uh, land of Israel, out of the promised land, because he hit the rock. No, that's not what God said. What God says is, because you did not uphold me as holy, you cannot lead my people into the land. What did Moses do? He went up, he struck the rock, and what did he say to the people? Why is it me and God always have to correct you? He placed himself right next to God with perfection and moral holiness, and then stood in the way between them and God. And God says, no, 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 no. Holiness has to do with uniqueness. You are not like me like that. You can't lead the people that way. It doesn't work like that. Same thing goes to every Christian, right? Uh, So here's a fascinating aspect here. So we're not only going to not do this uh, for the sake of our, uh, our Christian brothers and sisters. Verse 14, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now we have a whole other discussion going on. One of conscience. It does not matter if I am right or wrong. If I cannot in good conscience eat steak, because whether I'm wrong in my biblical interpretation or not is not even the issue, if I can't do it in good conscience, it actually is sin for me to do it. Because it violates the conscience, and I cannot do it in faith to God. It doesn't matter anymore if I'm right or wrong. The, the answer is, I would be wrong to do it. Whether or not I'm right or wrong is almost a moot point as far as Paul is putting this forward. He says, for, nothing is unclean in of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Now he turns to the people that are okay with everything. And he says to them, if you have this brother who, who for his own conscience sake, right or wrong is actually even a side point, can't abide eating meat, whether offered to idols or not, or whatever the case may be, or just meat itself. And he invites you over to his house, and you know that the meat's not going to be on the menu, and so you bring a big old side of beef to roast in his front yard. Is that a loving thing to do to your brother or sister? No, you muscle down the kale and carrots while you're there. You go eat your steak at home. Right? A no thank you portion. You would have a no thank you portion. Right, (laughs) exactly. Right. So if, because what does he say? If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. We're in Romans 14. Mm -hmm. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. This is where he says the the responsibility of, of, of fellowship is higher than being right. And by doing so, and by insisting on your freedoms in the face of somebody who you are violating their conscience... You're actually destroying them. You say, well, they should get over it. They're wrong. No. We're all wrong on a multiplicity of things. If that's how we live, the church will never be together. Ever. And so what does he say? Verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And here he doesn't even say that it absolutely is good. He just says what you regard as good. It might be spoken of as evil. Is this actually helpful 
Does this comport to fellowship in any way? No, of course not. Why? What does comport to fellowship? What is the focus of the church if not to come up with all the rules that everyone should live by so that they reflect what my life is? What does he say? Verse 17. This is his huge reference to the Holy Spirit in this passage. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of these scruples and life habits and cultural milieus, right? No. It is of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Why does he say that? Does that is that just moral relativism? No. That is definable. I mean, we've walked through the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. That is not relativistic. That is saying the focus of the church is always on what the Holy Spirit is bringing, life. How is he doing that? Through righteousness of Christ that bears out in our lives. Does it do so perfectly? Vic, are all of your righteous deeds perfect today? No. Do you have any hope that they will be in a year? That all of your righteous deeds will be perfect in a year? Okay, so, all right, so let's talk about hope in the biblical sense. Is that promise to you that your righteousness will be fully revealed in your lifetime? No. How about mine? Yours? Yours. Okay, so we're all going to be wrong on things. Yes? That's not the focus. The focus is not us. As always, the focus is what the Holy Spirit is doing in manifesting the righteousness of Christ as it is already on our account, now it shows up in our lives. But it's going to show up in very different ways. For those of you who have gone through church history with me, you know nobody in church history looked or talked like you. You have a real problem if you define what all Christians should be. That means no Christians have been around before you. (laughs) Now you stand suspended in history with no foundation, no history, and no way forward. And so what Paul says is, this is not the definition of a Christian. This is not the definition of fellowship. What is the definition of fellowship? What is the definition, even as he connects it to the kingdom of God, is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. All of those are only possible because the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us. Before the Holy Spirit, you did have to follow the God of Israel, even if you were a Gentile. You had to come to Israel. You had to come to the temple. You had to be purified by purification rites. Now that Christ has come, the Holy Spirit has come in his stead, that is no longer the case. Why is that? Because there needs to be a singular culture to follow the Lord. Now the righteousness by that is by definition? It is is twofold. Um, It is the righteousness gifted to the Christian at salvation, and it is also the righteousness of God that shows up in our lives through, um, through at good works that he has provided for us to do. So it's not a matter of getting the right laws or anything like this. We know the law, but uh, it is a matter, basically, of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that we read about in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, that's why they show up here. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. None of that is going, here's how many steps you can take on the Sabbath. Here's how many. It's not that stuff. It has to do with the virtues of life that come out of you. Um, And so it's not about going out and going, are you eating the right amount of vegetables? Or are you uh, drinking the right amount of alcohol? Or are you uh, playing this game or not this game? That's, yeah. Yep. You know, that kind of sets up the, the stage for righteousness. It does. It does. In other words, you know, if somebody is doing something that doesn't conform with 
what we've learned in that, in that, then that person really probably is not a righteous person. Correct. If so trying to live to it, that creates right. I understand if you don't follow all, you can follow all the laws and not be righteous. Okay. Correct. Correct. But if you want to be righteous, you ought to try and follow the laws that have been given to us. Is that not correct? So our preoccupation should be on the things that God has clearly stated, right? So there's nothing that He has clearly stated for the church about food or drink or anything like this. Okay. Uh, but if somebody is going to go, oh, you know what I'm going to do, um, you know, and it's not a matter of disagreeing whether, well, we'll use alcohol for an example, right? Consumption of alcohol is not unbiblical, broadly speaking, right? An overconsumption of alcohol undeniably is unbiblical and unchristian. So should we live boldly into this and never repent of it? Oh, absolutely not. But when we, when we see something that has the ability to overtake us and to destroy us, that violates the word of God. Absolutely. The work of the Holy Spirit is not to make friends of things that are killing us. It is to, uh, it is to aim us towards life in every way. And so every actual rule of God, what he is talking about here are the things that are kind of tangential to the rules of God. Uh, we're not here talking about things that the scripture clearly teaches on. We're talking about the things of life. You know, when we come together... What shape our building is, believe it or not, was a huge argument in the church. What, what we make our communion bread of. But this, kind, this is not what we're to be partaken of. The, the, you know, disputable matters should not define the church. Um, how, how this, I mean, the most recent one was, was the whole issue of mask wearing or not. People made it an absolute of, of morality one way or the other. It's neither of those things. If this is a matter of, of conscience, it's a matter of life, get along with one another. I hear what you're saying, I agree. And, sure. And I understand that the part about, it feels like the idea is that it's supposed to, our, our number one goal is for fellowship. But Correct. In some ways, it, you know, just among the denominations, for instance, it really divides us because we, we kind of go to the circles of people that believe like we do. Like Correct. talking about Baptists, so. Baptists believe in immersion Baptists, Presbyterians don't. Right. I, I mean, so we, we it kind of, by the way this is written, like, just be convinced of your own conscience, it almost drives us to be separate, not to be fellowship. You know? So that, that does at times, especially in cultures that are focused on individualism, mm. that is some of the effect. And it's, yeah. it's our burden to bear, especially in the West right now, right? Um, so if you go over, like, so when I was in Rome, I went to Rome Baptist Church, but guess what? There's like... Almost all the Protestants in the city were there that day, like 50 of us, right? I mean, because Rome is not a Protestant city, I don't know if you know. Uh, and, and, and there were people from all over the world, all sorts of different cultures and all sorts of different denominations all in one church, right? We live in the comfortable, you know, mountains of the Catskills here. And so we don't, we, we're not forced to that. We're not forced out of desperation for that yet. Um, I believe we will be soon. Um, but the reality is there, we have options here of, of religious freedom, and so we can do that. And what I'm saying is not that we need to go fix that. I don't believe it's technically fixable. Um, but we should be on our own quite accepting of one another regardless. Even if we are each wrong on, on scruples and matters of things and that. And there I would actually even put modes of baptism in the area of scruples. There have been way too many separations over this issue. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, could, you could take it to you know, politics. Right? I mean, 
there's a lot Correct. of other. You don't have to just Correct. stay in the church. You can go across. And and this this is why this is why for instance why politics don't belong in sermons, right? Because what we do is we teach. Uh, let me quote Martin Lloyd Jones on this one. We teach the scriptures and we depend upon God to work on the hearts of His people. We do not go in and work on the hearts of His people. Okay. So it is not to say that there's not moral codes within political ambition. No. It is to say that's not the subject of Scripture. Here, we infatuate ourselves with Christ. We submit to his word. And then God and the Spirit of God will apply that to your lives. Perfectly? No. This is not the end of times. It will be imperfect. And so you will have Christians, for instance, in a culture that votes. This is something the New Testament didn't know anything about. In a culture that votes, you'll have Christians voting against each other. Yeah, that's going to happen. What of it? Yeah, just it, the, the point here, I think, of the scripture, what you were saying, is that it's really the point that he's trying to make is that we, we should be a fellowship. Correct. Okay. And, and if we focus on these cultural aspects, all we are going to do is drive away actual Christians from our fellowship because we prefer ourselves over them. And at the end of the day, that's not loving. And that's exactly what he says. That's just pride. And pride leads to death. We all know this. I mean, isn't that the whole train of thought with it, right? Um, and so what does he say? Whoever thus serves Christ, and that, that goes across the board. Now realize, you're talking to a former Jewish Pharisee writing to a Gentile church in Rome. <laughs> okay? Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Because what's the alternative? Me upbuilding. What have we learned about what the Spirit of God is doing? And What have we learned from 1 Corinthians? Even if you're able to speak with angelic languages, you are worthless in your endeavors unless it is for mutual upbuilding. I don't care if you are right and you can speak the hypothetical language of heaven. It's actually hyperbole there, right? I don't care if you are capable of expressing mysteries beyond with the gift of prophecy. If you do not do it out of love and deference for one another, you are just making noise. That's what the Spirit of God is focused on. And it does lead to joy. It does lead to peace. It does not lead to moral relativism where we go, oh, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. Everything's okay, everything's fine. No, that's not true either. Using the grace of God as an excuse for sin is what false teachers do. That is taught in multiple passages. Here he's not speaking of false teachers, false teaching. He's not speaking of what's ultimately right and wrong. What he's talking about is cultural differences. And how do we live in the midst of that? It is not by choosing the one who speaks the loudest. It is not by the one who has the strictest rules, which is usually how it goes. That's not how the church is to interact with itself. The church is to interact with itself in the way in which he expresses this. Let's go to the conclusion of his application section of the book of Romans. That's uh, Romans chapter 15, very next chapter. Verse 13. In the midst of all of this, that Christ is the hope of the Jews and the Gentiles both, how else could the early church have gotten along if it didn't understand that there were massive cultural differences between Jews and Gentiles? says, Christ is the hope for both. That is the point of chapter 15. And so verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. There they come up again. In believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Notice that we do not have this as a natural ability. 
is just like the fruit of the Spirit. We cannot actually get along without the Holy Spirit. Not the way that the church is actually being built. During the days of Israel, they had a singular culture to hold them together. Israel. If you were a proselyte, you came and lived in Israel. Look at the story of Ruth. You actually came and lived in Israel. You, you raised your children in that manner. You circumcised your sons. You honored the Sabbath day and kept it holy. You went to temple. All of this, right? They had one culture. But now in the church, that is no longer the case. God is making out of all of the cultures of the world one people. And we are not to choose which culture is better to live after. If somebody from South Korea becomes a Christian, my job is not to teach them how to be an American Christian. That's pretty much what he's saying. My job is to show them Christianity, show them Christ. This is one of the issues that the Roman Catholic Church has. Everyone's got to be Roman. Verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you, again, keep in context, this is a Jewish former Pharisee writing to a Gentile church in Rome. I am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. What a wonderful thing to say about a church, by the way. But on some points, I've written you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, being sanctified is a word that we don't know, holified. Sanctus in the English uh, history, uh, in Latin, means holy, to be made holy, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. That should be the attitude of every Christian. We will only boast in that which Christ has done, even if it is done through us. We do not glorify our name. We do not glorify ourselves. We do not look at ourselves and go, my goodness, it's a good thing God has me. God is so lucky that me and those who agree with me have shown up in history. We're here to fix his gospel. No. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. He says, so I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. In other words, he's not going to bring his personal scruples to bear. Here's the thing. Paul as a former Pharisee, I promise you, had all sorts of issues with the way Gentiles ate things. Personally, had issues with that. And yet, he lived among Gentiles and founded Gentile churches, and God specifically called him to the Gentiles. Why? I think so that he would understand the severity of what he has to give. Has nothing to do with turning them into Jews. This is what the council in Jerusalem was so worked over with. The church in Jerusalem came together and said, how do we teach Gentiles to follow Christ? And they, you know what their reasoning was based on, you remember? The Holy Spirit came to them before they were circumcised in the same way as the Holy Spirit came to us after we were circumcised. Oh my goodness, it doesn't actually matter. Not that circumcision is unimportant, not in, none of that. They're saying as far as for the gospel of Christ, it will go out to all sorts of different people. And then we find all sorts of differences among the Gentiles. And so Paul is here writing to them how to get along with this. Correct. Yep. In fact, he was saying, uh, he even writes this to the churches in Galatia because so many were teaching that this is required for the Christian. Uh, Jewish people were going up there, preachers, and preaching that Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to follow Christ. Fine that you follow Christ, but 
you have to be circumcised. You have to become Jewish. And he writes back in the book of Galatians, in the harshest language in all the New Testament, and says, look, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And yes, he does use those terminologies. Are you so stupid as to think that that which began by the Holy Spirit continues by works of the flesh? He says, no, to add something to Christ is to remove Christ entirely. To miss the whole picture, everything. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The, from, from before the Damascus Road to after, he's a completely different focus of everything. That's what happens when you run into Christ. Right? So what is, what is Christ accomplishing through him? Verse 18, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God. That is, a, that is a compendium of the entire apostolic ministry. By word and deed, what I say matches my life. I'm not going to preach one thing and then secretly go away and only eat kosher with those who I really, really like and then go and preach something else. No, 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 no. We are going to have our words and our deeds preach the same thing. On top of that, the signs and wonders of the apostolic ministry are also going to speak the same thing. All of these things are aimed towards life. Right? The signs and wonders weren't, look, I can pick up a rock and I can put it back down again. That's meaningless. Look at all the signs and wonders they were doing. Healing from diseases, raising from the dead. Remember Eutychus who falls out the, uh, falls out the window and dies when Paul was preaching too long? <laughs> what was it, like a four hour long sermon? Falls asleep in the window, falls down, dies, goes out there, raises him to life again. Every one of the signs and wonders pointed towards life. Healing, restoration of the image of God, restoring of the use of the body, whatever the case may be. Blind man healed. You're made to see so that you understand that the God who made you sees you. Like, this, this, all of this is focused towards life. That's exactly what the Spirit of God is always doing. And so he, he, uh, he overarches the entire thing with that final phrase, by the power of the Spirit of God. The outcome of this is so that from Jerusalem, look at this, All the way around Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of me will see, and those who have never heard will understand. It is a simply marvelous thing that what the Holy Spirit is doing in the midst of the church is not making us like one another, he is making all of us like Christ, on different levels. If we go out and say, Christian, your job is to be more like me. Here's the rules that have worked in my life. Therefore, they should work in your life. If they are not about the gospel of Christ, and they are not about the salvation, and they are not about clearly delineated outright sins for all Christians, then you are teaching erroneous things. There are things in the church There are things in the habits of Christians that are sins for one Christian that are not for others. And until we fully grasp that, we really won't understand fellowship. There are differences in this very room. Things that one person can do that the other person cannot. Both of you should be fully convinced in your own mind. It is not a matter of finding out who's right. 
It is not a matter of figuring out if being a vegetarian is the ultimate Christian morality or being a omnivore, whatever it is, where you eat everything. Um, I think that's just called being overweight. So it's, a, <laughs> it's a seafood diet, right? It's not a matter of figuring out who's right. We are all wrong. Christ is right. And we should be pushing one another onto him. That's how Romans finishes out its section on fellowship. Let's go back, because we're going chronologically through the Bible, Acts chapter 20. Paul is finishing off his last missionary journey, and he is passing through Miletus, which is down on the coast. Uh, it'd be the first place if you were living in Ephesus um, and you wanted to take a ship, you would go to Miletus. It would be a day's journey. You'd pick up a ship there. So uh, that would be the equivalent here. And so he comes to Miletus, and all the Ephesian elders hear of it, and they come out to him. That's the... Um, that's the setting for one of the, one of the most fascinating aspects of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Verse 17, Acts chapter 20. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came, he said to them this. It's a remarkable to read it in its entirety. We're not going to read it in its entirety, but do it as some homework, if you will. Uh, addressed to the Ephesian elders is, is one of the most heartfelt things here. He says to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Now, to get the setting, he has just written the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians and the book of Romans, and he's mailed them off, and he lands in Miletus. So that, that's, the, that's why we're going through it chronologically like this, right? Uh, let's see, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's not an accident that that lines up with the book of Romans. This is what Paul's final message is to the church. He's at the end of his missionary journeys, and he's going to be able to preach the exact same message, whether it's a Jewish audience or a Greek audience. That's one of his main goals. We preach the kingdom of God. Well, shouldn't you, uh, you know, spin it this way? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. If you have an entire Jewish audience, he'll actually preach to them in Hebrew soon. You, you, can, you can work with the audience that you're given, but the message best be the same. It best end at Christ. Regardless of how you deliver it, the goal is the same, the gospel is the same. It's repentance toward God and faith in Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, yes, capital S, not knowing what will happen to me there, except huh, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Look at that. Every time that we, and you can learn in retroflex, every time that he has gone to one of these cities and he has been stoned or shipwrecked or beaten or imprisoned, the Holy Spirit told him before you've entered the city walls. How would you like that? Yes, every single time. Yeah, now, this, was, this is a pattern that God used with Paul from the very start. Most people don't even realize, after his Damascus Road experience and then his baptism with uh, Ananias, he goes and lives in the Arabian Desert for two to three years. 
And the scripture says that the Lord there showed him how much he was going to have to suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. How would you like a two to three year long experience in the desert learning how much you will have to suffer? That's not the suffering. The two to three years in the desert, that's just the classroom about suffering. Every time he comes to a city, the Holy Spirit tells him whether or not he will be imprisoned or beaten or whatever the outcome is going to be. And then still he walks through those city walls. Correct. He references this in Romans 11, right? Where he, he talks to a Gentile church and he says, look, you were a wild olive branch that was grafted into the, uh, the stump that is Israel. He was like, other branches were cut off, Jewish people were cut off so that you could be grafted in. What a remarkable, our, our root and our history goes to the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. But he says, how much more naturally would it be that those ones that were cut off would be grafted right in where they were cut off when they find Christ? And how much more will they understand? How much more will they see? And he is a testament to that. Exactly. Because all, all the pieces fit together, you know? And, and he is able to see that. And obviously the Holy Spirit was doing something very unique with him um, here with this kind of stuff. But this is remarkable. Notice what he has here. He is constrained to go to Jerusalem, but the Holy Spirit is not letting him know what will happen when he gets there. You want to talk about a feeling of doom. The Holy Spirit is never held back because of how bad or how easy it was going to be when I enter Miletus or when I enter Thessaloniki or whatever the case may be. And those have involved shipwrecks and beatings and scourgings and stonings, even to the point one time he was stoned so far that everyone thought he was dead, they dragged him out of the city and tossed him out in the heap. Woke up there. Continued on preaching. So, this kind of stuff has been told him everywhere, and he specifically states, the Holy Spirit has not yet told me what's going to happen in Jerusalem, I'm just going there because he's constrained me to go. What does he say, verse 24? What does he think is going to happen? I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. What does he think is going to happen in Jerusalem? He's going to die. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will ever see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That is the entirety of the scriptures. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Pay careful attention to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Because I know that after my departure, there he speaks of his death, fierce wolves will come in among you and not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, be alert. And he continues on to a, a remarkable testament to, this, uh, to these church leaders. It is sometimes hard for us to imagine how difficult knowing the sufferings that you will endure before they happen. And Paul here reveals that that was his habit everywhere he went. 
what a difficult thing. Next chapter. He comes, he, he takes the ship from Miletus, goes along around Tyre. If you're not familiar, uh, at that point it was already a um, peninsula. It used to be an island, but Alexander the Great built dirt out to it, so it made it in a peninsula so he could lay siege to it back 200 years beforehand. So he comes around Tyre, and he lands down, um, uh, he lands down in Ptolemaeus, and uh, you'll pick up in Acts 21, verse 7. And watch what happens here, because now the Holy Spirit is about to tell him what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Acts 21, verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, this is Luke speaking, by the way, he was traveling with Paul. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. Uh, so, I mean, it's just step by step by step, closer to Jerusalem, closer to Jerusalem. We entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, uh, who was one of the seven, by the way, one of the seven deacons from earlier on in the book of Acts, um, of, of the church in Jerusalem who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying, yeah, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, came down is not south. That's how we speak. Came down means Jerusalem and Judea are up on a plateau. He literally comes down from Jerusalem down to this house of Philip the Evangelist. Agabus comes down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt bound his own hands and feet and says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. <laughs> There's some Old Testament prophet style for you. We're going to interact and, uh, and act out exactly what's going to happen with the message being delivered. Luke says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Look at Paul's answer. Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Now, I don't think I have to tell you what happens in Jerusalem. If you're familiar with the end of the missionary journey of Paul, he goes there, a whole mob overtakes him, arrest him, binds his feet, and they send him to Rome. He, he talks to one king and then another king, Festus and Agrippa and all sorts of things, all the way appeals to Caesar, and so they send him to Rome. He is under house arrest in Rome. You can turn to chapter 28. That's just a quick run through those six chapters. All of that happened in those six chapters. He finds himself in Rome, and this is how the book of Acts finishes off. Ironically, or probably not, it shouldn't be surprising to you, finishes off with the Holy Spirit's references. Paul was in Rome, chapter 28, verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, this is to come and be uh, heard before Caesar himself, because every Roman citizen had the right to appeal to Caesar, so he did. Uh, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. That's the whole of the Old Testament scriptures, by the way. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul and made one statement. Uh, Paul, uh, after Paul had made one statement, quote, The Holy Spirit was right. In saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, 
Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts, uh, heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Unquote. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It is a remarkable way to finish off the the fulfillment of a prophecy given to Isaiah 800 years beforehand. Jesus quoted that exact same passage out of Isaiah 6 as to the reason why he gives parables. It is so that those whom he is calling to salvation will hear the gospel and they will come to him. And those whom he is not will be confused by his words. If you don't believe that, go and read Jesus' expression of why he gives parables. He says, so that those whom I am calling will come to and those who will not will not hear. Why does Paul finish us off talking about this, this frustration that the Holy Spirit was right in all of these things? And this made a whole bunch of Jewish people leave. If you listen to some uh, fools who teach in churches today, we shouldn't pay attention to the Old Testament at all. All we should, we should, we should because it's not popular, right? What, what we have to do is we'll, we'll, We'll come to this, and what does he say? He expounds to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. He uses the whole Old Testament. But what happens? What's the effect? Some were convinced, but others disbelieved. If you listen to some people in our culture, for the sake of those who do not believe, we need to stop preaching the Old Testament. Yes, it is a huge movement today. But Paul doubles down on this and actually does not only not stop teaching the Old Testament, he'll actually quote it about why it is they're not believing in the first place. And it's insulting, quite deeply so, because it tells them exactly who they are. This is why I always say humility, humility is not a virtue saying and believing about myself worse than I actually am. No, humility is actually seeing myself for who I am in light of God. Yes, that's correct. Thank you very much. Um, I, I love the way the book of Acts finishes out. Uh, we're going to be in some of the prison epistles that he writes when he's in Rome. So Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, we're going to be back in those. Uh, and then we will we'll make a beeline to some of the later texts and we will finish off one of the most glorious passages at the end of the book of Revelation where the Spirit and the church both cry out for Christ to return. So that's where we're heading. We're... we're maybe five or six weeks from finishing the whole New Testament. Um, And uh, if you guys are traveling and going to miss some of it, don't worry. It's all going to be recorded and posted up. Um, Let's pray. I got to go help out with worship team. (laughs) Our Father, we're grateful for your word. We're thankful for these two books, Romans and the book of Acts. We have spent a lot of time with uh, both of them. And we are very thankful for what they express to us about the Holy Spirit, uh, who continually sanctifies his people We thank you for the promises that are given to us that he doesn't just help us where we are weak. He helps us because we are weak at all times, everywhere. And he makes intercessions for us. And we are deeply grateful for this. Uh, We thank you, Father, for this day. We pray that you be glorified in it and that we learn to enjoy you forever here as we practice that today. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.